This week on Life and Faith. Historians like to talk about how change happens, but we also need to think about why some things seem to stay the same. The bottom line is no one comes out of history with clean hands. It's a very messy process. My birth certificate actually doesn't have a name on it. It says Child 2508. Desire is a basic human yearning. Tell those people that you love them. Tell those people whom you love that you love them. This is Life and Faith from the Centre for Public Christianity. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. If you've been listening to Life and Faith for a while... You've probably heard me say maybe once or twice, maybe a few times that years ago I was a high school history teacher, so I'm really keen for today's episode. This is one for the history nerds out there, but also for the history skeptics. Now, if you're someone who finds the study of history a bit daunting, or you think it's hopelessly biased, or as I must admit I heard many times from teenagers that it's simply boring, (laughs) well today's for you. That's right, we're going to take a half hour-ish here to think about our relationship as 21st century kind of somewhat educated humans to the past, to examine some of our habits, maybe shake up a few stereotypes, identify a few pitfalls. Uh, So Simon, how would you characterise your relationship to history? Like if you imagined history as a person, how do you relate to them? Um, History as a person? Well... I don't know, maybe I'm excited to see this person. I'm excited to see you and hear what you've got to tell me about the world and how endlessly fascinating people are wherever they appear in the human story. So I'm, I'm wanting to lean forward and listen to the struggles and triumphs and the complexity of even those things. And it's never simplistic. It's never clear cut. So, I, you know, I love that. Maybe a fascinating stranger. Yeah, fas- <laughs> well, you're more than a stranger. I feel there's some, mm-hmm. you know, familiarity there. But, yeah, I'm excited. Cool. How about you? Uh, thinking about this, because I feel like I, I'm, a, I'm kind of a history person. I love history. Mm. But I wonder if, for me, it's a bit like an elderly relative where, you know, you do love your great aunt or whoever, but you kind of think you know her, but actually you've put her in a bit of a box Mm. and there are all these things about her life and her personality that you have no idea about. So when she does or says something unexpected, you realize that actually you do not know this woman (laughs) all that well. So yeah, history is my great aunt. Does that make sense? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there's sort of endless depth to plumb there. Mm. And I don't always plumb them. I forget them. No. Well, perhaps today we will do a bit of that and get to know your great aunt just a little bit better. Uh, you know, with the help of a lineup of historians and other scholars who know more than we do about her, let's be honest. So these sort of pocket insights are all drawn from the repository of fabulous interviews we have from For the Love of God documentary. And we're gradually making all that material available for free on our website, publicchristianity.org. And these are just a snapshot. Now, Natasha, who do you want to kick off with today? Okay. Well, one thing that keeps us from understanding the past better, according to these experts that we spoke to, is kind of our own judginess. Um, Mm. We think that we know what people used to be like. um, And I think if we're honest, actually, we kind of think that we're better than them. Um, And someone who's really challenged me on this is the writer Marilyn Robinson, one of my favorites and yours. And a lot of her essays have made me rethink my own, I guess, chronological snobbery. That's what C.S. Lewis would call it. 
Uh, so this is Marilyn Robinson talking about how we look down on some of our forebears, usually without actually knowing anything about them or reading them directly. I'm culturally predisposed to read Puritans and Calvin sympathetically. You know, um, We all have inherited one tradition or another. I have this strange loyalty to all former generations. I think they were just as earnest and just as brilliant as anyone. And that the fact that certain details of their sensibility and their circumstance have been lost to us, it's still very clear that there are much that's brilliant in classical theology, for example. It has not been outmoded, you know. I think people just arbitrarily impoverish their experience by the prejudice against the past. I remember this conversation with Marilyn Robinson well. It was in Iowa, and we like to tell people how two weeks before we arrived in Iowa to do this interview, Barack Obama flew in Air Force One to (laughs) Iowa to interview Marilyn Robinson. He was doing a podcast, and he wanted her to be his first guest. So, you know, Mm. we felt like we were... Reflected glory. Yeah, it was reflected (laughs) glory. But on the same trip, I spoke with the sociologist Rodney Stark. This was down in Texas. And he was, let's be honest, less gentle than Robinson about this. But he had a similar point to make. We were talking about the Crusades, and I was trying to say, look, a lot of the things European crusaders did in the Middle East are pretty hard to reconcile with their faith. And he didn't disagree with that. But he also told me it was silly to try to impose the Geneva Convention on medieval warfare. Well, sure. I mean, if you're going to make moral judgments of people, you've got to, seems to me, to, to take some view of their conditions, um, what they thought they were doing, and recognize that uh, the times change, that... Uh, The moral attitudes are different, although Lord knows if you look at modern wars going on, I I don't think that the the Crusaders come off looking so bad. I mean, uh, the ISIS folks seem to be uh, quite beyond the pale, and certainly World War II was was a bloody mess, and and the Holocaust happened, so uh, uh, we shouldn't get too... uh, too superior in our views of the medieval people. I guess there's a line here somewhere. We can't be morally neutral about the past. We want to be able to say this was wrong and it was always wrong, even if that was clear to almost nobody at the time. But equally, looking at history and thinking that we're morally superior and we would never do things like that, there's a naivety to that and a lack of humility, I guess. Here's Marilyn Robinson again. I think it's very important to deal with the fact that we are flawed and that we are all flawed. I think that the idea of original sin is one of the most brilliant that antiquity has yielded. People want to set themselves apart from the evil that has existed in the world and exists now, the sadness, all of it. But that makes them hard, I think, because they act as if it were all some terrible error made by other people that they themselves are not vulnerable to making. And um, I think real humanism depends on taking the whole history of humankind, which is really something, really a difficult thing. But at the same time, we have to look with pity and we have to look with recognition on all the generations that have come before us and understand that we are as blind as they are. 
So, Simon, how do you go at this? How judgy do you get when you look at history? And is this something that you tried to teach when you were a history teacher, to teach a bit of historical humility to high school boys? Well, I definitely did. And um, I have to say, I'm not overly confident of my influence in any direction on my students back then. But um, (laughs) I think it was an area, having studied history, though, I feel like I'm not too bad at this in terms of being judgy myself. But it's a worthy challenge to get kids interested in history these days. And you can do it. (laughs) Really good teachers do. And I'm biased, but I think it's essential. I think it should be compulsory to do history, to understand the human condition, to gain the skills required in life, to assess evidence and hear different perspectives and synthesize that information, which is part of, you know, historical humility. That's one of the things you get, right? I could go on here, Natasha. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess kind of fleshing out that history was more than, like we, we have a way of thinking of now as 3D and the past as very 2D. And a lot of these scholars that we talk to warn against those ways that we flatten out the past. Um, So we've lined up a few examples here. First, Alistair McGrath, the Oxford scientist and historian, he wants to make sure that we don't pin later attitudes on earlier generations to make distinctions between different time periods. So here he's talking about Darwin's theory of evolution and how Christians reacted to it. If there is a tension between Christianity and Darwinism, that was not really seen at the time in the 1850s, 1860s. It really emerged in the 1920s in North America when the movement that we sometimes call Protestant fundamentalism began to develop. And they saw this as a battle between the Bible and the secular culture. If we go back to England in the 1860s, we see a very different picture. The Church of England thought, look, this makes sense. but we have people like, for example, Charles Kingsley at Westminster Abbey, or indeed Samuel Wilberforce, Bishop Oxford, both saying, look, this makes sense. The science seems to resonate with the way in which we read our Bibles. And Frederick Temple, who later became Archbishop of Canterbury, preached a very famous sermon in which he said that Darwin had simply helped us to see that God, in effect, enabled nature to make itself, in effect, transferring a certain degree of autonomy to the created order. So We've got to be very, very careful about retrojecting the concerns of the 1920s back into the 1860s. Here's one that was a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, Sarah Coakley, the theologian and philosopher, she looks way back at the early days of Christian monasticism uh, and how it actually presented opportunities for women as nuns that were otherwise pretty non-existent. So this thing that looks quite constraining in some ways from where we're standing could actually offer women freedoms that they otherwise just did not have. What is often forgotten in contemporary culture, however, is that as soon as the early monastic or ascetic forms of life arose within Christianity, which was quite early, especially in the Syriac-speaking churches, women had the opportunity to pursue a celibate uh, monastic role that allowed them to escape from the uh, subordinations which were assumed to be normative within the marriage role for them in the culture. And it's really in this area that an enormous amount of research of a creative sort has been going on in recent decades, showing that when women lived an ascetic life, they not only could operate quite autonomously in certain circumstances, but also their very understandings of themselves in gender terms were freed up 
from the presumptions that femininity involved subordination. In fact, it gave to them an extraordinary fluid understanding of what they were capable of achieving, thinking, and what leadership roles they might take. I spoke to Nick Spencer from Theos Think Tank in London. He is great at condensing very complicated stories without flattening them out. Here's one example of how the law of unintended consequences plays out in history. If you wanted an image of the kingdom of God, I don't think you'd go to the medieval papacy to give it to you. It's another one of those great examples of, you know, in the same way as people followed the Prince of Peace violently, they followed the man who came in poverty through riches. It's remarkable how quickly we can drift away from the original message and the original person. So there are no shortage of stones that you can pick up and throw at the medieval papacy for being opulent and corrupt and self-serving. But here's an interesting twist to the story. What happens in the Gregorian Reformation in the 11th, 12th century, this is the Reformation of the papacy, is that the papacy becomes aware of itself as a self-contained society that owns its own existence to God, not to secular authorities. Now that is certainly how the direction it had drifted in the 10th century. And first in the papacy of Gregory VII, and then subsequently to a number of quite muscular popes afterwards, the church aggressively asserts its authority, first and foremost to appoint its own bishops across Europe. Now Gregory VII is not an attractive human being. Innocent III is not an attractive human being. But what they do is they carve out a space in which secular authority, political authority, is not final. And that has been called the first secular revolution in European history, because one of the ideas of secularism is that it limits political power in order for what we might call free civil society. Arguably, the papacy of this period could only have done that because it was so big, so powerful, so rich, and so self-serving. So it's an interesting paradox. Nobody wants to emulate that particular papacy because it's not morally attractive and it's certainly not Christ-like. But it's by being rich and powerful and aggressive that it actually manages to stand up to emperors and kings who were also rich and powerful and aggressive. The bottom line is no one comes out of history with clean hands. It's a very messy process. Life and Faith from CPX, and in this episode, Natasha and I are taking a tour of some cautionary tales told us by scholars who want to warn us that there are lots of ways of getting history wrong. Such as approaching the past with a bit of a superiority complex, um, or else oversimplifying when the reality is actually far more layered and usually far more interesting. Yes, and, and doing history is a very human enterprise, and so that means it's always going to be flawed at some level. And in this second half, the scholars we talk to comment on the practice of history, what historians do or don't pay attention to, and why that matters. Is this something you wanted to do, Simon? Did you consider becoming an historian? Well, kind of and maybe not. I have to say, I'm just really in awe of really good historians and their ability to gather vast oceans of information and draw it together into a coherent story. I don't know that I ever felt I had the patience or you know, perhaps the skill to do that. 
a lot of the things that I found were a surprise to me. And that's true both historically and statistically. This is Robert Woodbury. We've had him on the podcast before. He started working on the historical influence of colonial missionaries a couple of decades ago. His findings on how Christian missions contributed dramatically, unexpectedly, to the development of democracy around the world was pretty controversial and also award-winning. Missionaries have been written out of a lot of history. They just sort of ignored. And there's a lot of stereotypes that people think are historically true just because they get repeated a lot. So as I began to look at it very carefully and sort of follow through, how did you get the spread of printing? And how did you get the spread of newspapers? And how did you get the spread of modern education? And how did you get abolitionism? Why do you get forced labor ending in some societies earlier than others? And kept on seeing the role of missionaries. It was quite extraordinary. And after a while, I started to feel frustrated because I felt like the people who are writing this know this. There's no way you cannot know this if you're actually looking at primary documents. There's no way that you can ignore it. But when they write it up, they just disappear. And the impact of missionaries just disappears. At this point, I don't feel surprised anymore. I actually have become a little bit cynical, maybe, of some of the standard histories, and particularly when it comes into social sciences, political science, sociology, economics, and where they generalize. So often histories, some of them you'll find the missionaries in there. Their role generally is minimized. But once you get to comparative analysis, they just disappear. So if I'm working on a question and I don't see anything about missionaries in the secondary sources, I don't assume that missionaries were not important anymore. I just assume I haven't found their influence yet and I search for it in the primary documents. Woodbury doesn't think this is a conspiracy or anything. He's thought a lot about why missionaries have been so invisible to most historians. I think there's multiple reasons that it's left out. One of them is academia, particularly the social sciences, are a pretty secular discipline. So social scientists are mostly not religious and mostly don't know much about missionaries. And so they don't ask the questions, or they're sort of embarrassed. They sometimes find it embarrassing that missionaries have these things that they, effects that they like. I think also, even if there are not as many Marxists in, in the social sciences as there used to be, they're still shaped by Marxist ways of thinking that tend to be class analyses. Economic things are the things that drive things. Power drives things. And it does. All those things are important. So they don't tend to look at something like beliefs or religious things shaping the world, but I think they did. Three, I think there is an embarrassment about Western colonization and Western dominance and Western arrogance. So there's a reaction, there's an anti-colonial reaction, a reaction against colonialism and European dominance, and not wanting Europeans to be the only or main actors in history. So there's a, a desire to find non-European, non-North American, non-Australian, New Zealand people who are doing things and shaping their own history, which they did. So I think there's an embarrassment when they're sort of like, oh, the, the great white missionary who comes along and does these things which transform another society. I also think there's among nationalists or, or local historians, there's a sort of desire to create our history 
and not wanting white people to be crucial actors in it, except in a bad way, except in sort of causing the problems that, that are there. So, I mean, there's lots of different reasons um, that missionaries, I think, are ignored or stereotyped in a bad way. I think we shouldn't, it's like a pendulum. It's swung too far the other way, um, and it needs to come back to the middle again, to something more balanced, where missionaries and Europeans are not the only actors, but they are one important set of actors. Other people get left out of history too, for different reasons. Catherine Breckis is a professor of religious history at Harvard Divinity School, and she talks about one group in particular who have been neglected in her area. Until fairly recently, when historians wrote about religion, they usually focused on leaders, and leaders were men. And so I think history um, was told as the story of male leaders, and it was just assumed that women were somewhere in the pews. But I think what we have to recognize is that churches would not exist at all if not for the choice of women to attend church, to uh, devote their labors to sustaining churches, and that there has been nothing inevitable about that, that women in every generation have had to decide whether or not they're going to continue that work of building churches, sustaining churches. So um, historians like to talk about how change happens, but we also need to think about why some things seem to stay the same. And what you can see with women is that women for many generations have continued to make the decision to support churches and therefore to keep Christianity going as a religion. I'm well aware, though, in all of this, that the question for the history skeptic is, who cares? Why does it matter? There are all these ways of getting history wrong, all these traps you can fall into. How much difference does it really make? Well, Nick Spencer has one answer for us. George Orwell famously once wrote that he who controls the present controls the future and he who controls the past controls the present. Where we're going, how we should shape society, depends on our sense of who we are, what we value, and our sense of identity and value and purpose like that is invariably predicated on where we've come from. If we are totally amnesiac about our past, A, we're being dishonest, and B, we are giving a kind of malleability to the future that really isn't there and is actually quite worrying. The future should in some sense be a continuity with who we are and, and where we've been. And so writing out our Christian pasts is not only bad history and, and slightly dishonest, but it gives us a bit of a carte blanche, tabula rasa, for the future. And that in itself is problematic. Those societies that have sought, I don't know what the Latin plural of tabula rasa is, but those societies that have sought to forget the past and rewrite the future, as many did in the 20th century, tend to do so at significant human cost. Now, remember, all these interviews were ones we did for our documentary, For the Love of God, which is all about the best and worst of Christian history. So all this was really about the big picture of Christianity's influence on our world. Someone who's good at explaining that big picture uh, and with quite a bit of spiciness, shall we say, is the polymath 
David Bentley Hart. Here he is, first on the pop version of Western history. I think uh, it's been the case that since the late 18th century, the sort of historical narrative, maybe starting with Gibbon, took shape. And this is entirely nonsensical, but it makes for a good story is that Christianity entered a world of rather a high, even luminously sublime ideals like reason and beauty and civil concord uh, among religions. This is another part of the myth that non-Christian religions in the empire got along with one another terribly well, not really true. And that it introduced Christianity, that is, introduced a, a new fanaticism, a new spite, a new malice, against the attainments of classical culture, against every other creed. Uh, there's plenty of violence in Christian history. Not coincidentally, Christians are humans, and, uh, and as a result, uh, tend to behave like human beings, uh, as disappointing as that can be. But uh, the story that began in the pages of, of Gibbon's decline and fall was that there was something uniquely fanatical and violent about Christianity in its early centuries, and this carried over in the centuries that followed and naturally mutated into all sorts of tyrannies, local and global. The story you get is just basically that. We, we have an early period in which Christians supposedly burned libraries and books and started killing one another at a very early period, all of which is not true. Uh, this immediately uh, turned into a long period of uh, the ruthless persecution of heretics and witches, uh, some of which is true, not the bit about witches, which uh, you know, the witch burnings are an early modern phenomenon, not a medieval one. And then, of course, also imposed a cruel regime of sexual repression. And, uh, and uh, as a whole, uh, the Enlightenment was a solution to this, the antithesis to the Christian problem, uh, and we're better off without the encumbrances of these superstitions and these cruel fanaticisms, and that if they were to vanish, the world would be, as Richard Dawkins says, a paradise, if we could only shake off these fanciful and nasty beliefs. And to bring us home, here's David Bentley Hart presenting the other side of that story. Whatever else uh, one wants to impress on, on cultured despisers of Christianity today, it's that whether they like it or not, uh, they're beholden to it in ways too deep uh, to do away with, and perhaps always to perhaps to understand. It's hard for modern Western persons quite to grasp how strange, in long historical perspective, their view of the moral good, of, of social justice, of what the human person is, or the unique. Uh, an almost infinite value of the person as, as, as in each instance. It simply wasn't the case in the ancient world and hasn't been the case in most of human history. This isn't to say that, that Christianity overnight transformed uh, the way men and women viewed one another and viewed their neighbors and viewed strangers, but it certainly <laughs> started with a radical enunciation of an ethos that for the most part was unimaginable in the ancient world. Over the centuries, one way or another, however much Christian culture and Christian peoples may have betrayed these ideals, this was the moral grammar they had. It, it saturated everything. It worked its way into the deepest recesses of conscience to the point that 
I find it amusing sometimes when an ardent secularist talks about enlightenment values and those values on close examination turn out to be just a kind of somewhat etiolated form of Christian principles that have no basis in experience, but rather, rather deeply are founded on moral intuitions that, that go back to the religion of the God-man, of God in the form of a slave. It would be nice if, if that change had occurred more rapidly, but perhaps then uh, it wouldn't have occurred as pervasively. You know, a, a convulsive revolution doesn't really change the way people think, but a, a, a revolution of moral expectation, moral language over many generations changes the very foundation of reality. It changes the way we see everything. So for what it's worth, whether one believes or doesn't believe, it's good to acknowledge the historical contingency of the values that inform even the, the atheist's proudest moral certainties. You know. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. And this episode starred Marilyn Robinson, Rodney Stark, Alistair McGrath, Sarah Coakley, Nick Spencer, Catherine Breckis, Robert Woodbury, and David Bentley Hart. These interviews are available in video form from publicchristianity.org slash interviews. They all appear in a category called Getting History Right. But there are literally hundreds of other grabs under headings like Science versus Faith, Aboriginal Experience, Religious Violence, and Tiny Bites. All the tiny bites are under a minute. So if you're someone who these resources would be useful to, you can browse and use all of those for free. That's publicchristianity.org slash interviews. If you happen to be listening to this episode on the morning that it's released, you still have time to book in for our public lecture, the Richard Johnson Lecture, which will be on Thursday night, the 1st of September in Sydney and the 5th of September in Melbourne. Andy Crouch is out from the US. He'll be giving this lecture. The title is Disconnected, Why Technology Keeps Disappointing Us. Andy will be brilliant. Uh, we really recommend it. He'll also be speaking at Bible Society Australia's Bible Conference in Sydney on September 2. Don't miss these events if you've got any chance of getting to them. We'll put a link to those events in the show notes. Next week. I had a survivor say when she first came into contact with us, she felt like she had to just tell anyone and everyone who would listen about what had happened to her. But after getting some support, she said, it feels like my spine has been restored. Like my core is starting to be put back together and I don't have to tell anyone what's going on because I know that I'm listened to here 